Welcome to Circular Firing Squad. I'm Marty Gensius, a counseling faculty at Kent State University and a host for Circular Firing Squad. We've got five members, five questions, and five answers for each question. Questions are generated by each squad member and run from the loquacious to the ludicrous. Let's see who's here tonight. Hey, everyone. Jen Cook, Associate Professor, New England College. Hi, everyone. Eric Perry, Clinical Faculty at Southern New Hampshire University. Hi, everyone. Dr. Gina Martin, Assistant Professor at the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. Hi, Steph Martyr, Practicing Clinical Counselor, uh, Doctoral Candidate at Kent State University and co-host of Grad School Deconstructed. I'm going to encourage everybody to uh, keep their microphones open tonight. We did this in a show a couple of weeks ago, and I think last the last episode we recorded with our mics open. And um, so it'll give us a little bit more interaction. Elliot's now with us tonight. I have had some contact with him, and I'm sure he's missing us and missing the group. And we'll see him next time uh, when we're going to do a live show that everybody can be a part of. So, Jen, you've got the first question. I certainly do. So to start us off tonight, y'all, um, do counselors need to be politically aware and informed to practice culturally relevant counseling? Well, I, I have an answer. Um, yes. Like if you if you heard the question mark in that, right? Because my caveat is always this, right? People are complex. And so are political views. And I, I think having some knowledge about what's going on in the country, what's going on around you, um, you know, current events, all that's important. And there's a lot of advocacy that happens around the counseling profession. And working with clients, I... I I think about it as as I do culture sometimes in that, you know, I, I want them to be able to define what their politics are. Um, if that's something they're talking about in session, I think for me, I, I want to be more aware of how of what I bring into session, right? What my views are and how that might impact me and working with my clients, uh, because I know I have some pretty strong views uh, about what I feel is right and, and my own political views. And I have to be able to separate that. I have to be able to come in with that unconditional, unconditional positive regard. And for me to do that, I think I have to have a knowledge of, of what's going on and also have a good knowledge of, of what I'm bringing into the room and how I might react to political views that are different from my own. Um, so I would say some knowledge is important, um, but more so important to be prepared to learn from your client what those views are and why they might be important to them. I think, you know, we tend to look at this kind of, I won't say we, but there's this tendency sometimes to look at, at, at culture in this really kind of myopic way. And, you know, political views are part of that. And, and the client should be able to define that for themselves. And they may have different meaning than my understanding of what uh, a particular political party or view might be. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Eric. I think that there has to be some knowledge and more importantly than the knowledge around it, I think there has to be awareness. So like, you know, the why behind things for you as a counselor and for your clients, because, you know, like you said, you bring that into the room with you. And I think that that's okay. We just have to be aware of it. Um, additionally, I think it, I think it is important just kind of like having a knowledge of pop culture and culture in today's day and age. I think it's it's important to 
to show your client that you're worth or that you're aware of things happening. Um, my students like to remind me that I am culturally incompetent because I have never seen Forrest Gump or any of the Marvel movies. And I know that that is a highly, highly unpopular opinion. And it's just a fact about me. I've seen clips and I just can't get behind it. So I think having an awareness of it, knowledge of it, sure. But do you have to watch the whole two and a half, three, what is it, 17 hour movie? I don't know. Sorry, I'm getting tripped up because I was about to share. Well, I think I already shared that a movie I hadn't seen. And I, I was just thinking of the backlash um, of, of never having seen The Godfather. Right. Um, so I'm I'm glad I don't have to subject myself to students and their. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I can see the every the, the inaudible gasp. <laughs> so I've never seen that, but you know that that is my life. You don't need to see it. You live That's it. Right. I live it. That's right. There you go. Disappointed on so many counts right now. I, I just... know. See, see. Um. So you know what. I was reading the that question and I was thinking along the lines of Gina's second half where I was thinking, yes, you, you got to know what's going on enough, at least for me when I'm relating to my clients and not me relating my views to my clients, but I'd like my clients to feel like I'm aware of things that affect them and then they can go ahead, um, you know, like what Eric was telling me and then give their views on said events, but just the factual knowledge of things going on in the world that are in the headlines anyways, that at least, because sometimes I can get removed. I can get into my own world and, you know, all of a sudden I haven't seen big headlines for two or three days. And that's, I'm like, Oh, that happened. What? Huh? How did I miss that? You know? Um, And that wouldn't be great. You know, I don't like that feeling necessarily when I, um, I'm working with a client and they bring up something that's important to them that's going on in the world at that time. I I mean, it's great that they can explain it to me and talk about it. Um, I, I do think that it creates more of a connection sometimes um, with the big stuff that you feel like everyone should kind of at least know what's going on. Um, it's, it's helpful to make that connection with clients if you're kind of aware already. You know, um, a question for me is... Uh more about counselor educators in the classroom. And that's how I interpreted it. That's the lens I look at it through, through it at. And the idea of being politically aware and informed to, to practice and be culturally relevant counseling, it's a resounding yes to me now, because uh, politics is about oppression and power. And generally the kinds of things that occur in politics wind up hurting people who have little power. And as a result of that, being aware of those potential changes means that we have to we have to address that in some way. Whether it's clinically through our clients, we have to know about it. But really in in I can't see how a student who wants to be a counselor, how they cannot be politically aware and informed. It's just crazy to me to think that they would not need to be, not just want to be, but need to be and want to be politically aware and informed because politics is about power and oppression. So 
you know, you can't get away from what we do as being political. Now, the problem is we can't talk about it in the classroom anymore without giving the other side. So it's like, let's talk about the facts. But then we have to give the other side of not true facts in order to balance it out in the classroom. So it's become a very scary space for us to be able to talk about politics and to help students become more politically aware. Um, but it's about power and oppression. So, yeah, definitely connected to culturally relevant counseling. Agreed. And and I'm glad you spoke to that power and oppression piece, because I, I think that it's irresponsible as counselor educators and as counselors not to to know that and to be up to date on it. And there are so many things that are happening in our nation and in our world that are impacting individuals directly, especially those who have the least amount of power and the least amount of resources and support to have, you know, changes over their reality. What stimulated this question for me is that I've been aware of institutions in which um, faculty, program directors, chairs, etc., have been taking backlash for you know, broaching political subjects that impact students and clients um, with their students and, you know, trying to give them factual information and how to, you know, navigate these issues personally and professionally. Um, the Roe v. Wade situation, you know, was very recent where that overturning happened. And I've heard from a number of people who hold leadership positions within their programs take heat from administration saying you should not have sent an email about this to your students. You should not be talking about this in your classrooms. And the responses of these educators are political issues are culturally relevant issues to our clients because they are about the haves and the have-nots and who has access and who has control and who has power. And in order to to broach in a way that is culturally relevant, we have to address those very large issues that are happening in our in our society, which a lot of times have political ramifications attached to them. But yes, there's a lot of faculty and leadership that are taking heat for this. But for our profession, and this is somewhere where I think that um, our accrediting body could potentially um, advocate on our behalf, which is to say that we have to take a, we have to take a stand of education with these issues, despite whatever the state law that might say that we can't make anyone feel bad or don't say gay or whatever it may be, we have to speak these things because they are the reality uh, in which our clients are living, especially those with non-dominant identities who are going to feel the most heat from it. So um, we're in an interesting space, I think, as counselor educators and as professional counselors, in my opinion, to have to be up to date, aware and ready to tackle these structures of oppression and to and to make changes. I, I was trying to come up with a really interesting segue and I don't have one. So I'm, I'm just going to openly admit that this question is, is in a completely different direction uh, and throw it out. Um, so what smells or scents remind you of something comforting? I, I was reading this question today, Eric, and I, I had so many things come to mind and I was like, I don't know which ones I'm going to share. I feel like scent um, and specific smells and things can bring you back to a specific time in life. I think we all know that that's part of how memories work. And I think that there are so many that are associated with good memories, comforting memories, memories of whatever, sunshine and happiness. And with that, I think the one that I'm going to go with is clean laundry. I think there is something about clean laundry to me. 
for whatever reason, that is just so comforting and so like calming that I I just really appreciate it. And it's not, this is going to sound really weird, but it's not just any clean laundry, but it's like clean laundry from my childhood home. <laughs> uh, and I don't know why still to this day, I can't get my own laundry to smell like my childhood home laundry ever did. And whenever I go back home and my mom washes some of my clothes, it will still smell like the same scent. And I use all the same detergents and everything. You know, my parents moved into a different home from our childhood home. And yet whenever she does my laundry, it still smells the same as when I was a child. And I, I don't know if there's something wrong with me that I can't figure out how to do laundry like my mom does, but it just never, never smells the same. Clean laundry from my childhood home. Yeah, because you took away my only hypothesis was like different water, you know, but but you shattered that because they moved. So, you know, it just must be that love. See, I was on that mom's folding it and her perfume is rubbing off onto the clothes as she's folding the sheets up against her body. You know? uh, okay, I've gone too far. <laughs> um, so I have... Like, you know, there's a few different ones as well. I'm like you, Gina. And um, really, I find that a lot of them get caught up in some specific Yankee candle smells. So um, <laughs> really, I think people can relate. Um, sage and citrus has always been like a number one scent for me, for candles, the wax, whatever. It's been 20 something years and I've just always been drawn to it. So sometimes it takes me back to when I was living in my first apartment um, in college as like a, a junior in college. And I redid my whole bedroom and I made it just very peaceful. And I had this Asian citrus scent. And then very recently I was smelling my uh, daughter's conditioner and I'm like, what is this? What is this? And I realized it was one of the apple Yankee candle smells is what it was reminding me of back in my childhood home as a teenager lighting candles because, you know, I was that cool. I quickly tried to do a search for bad Yankee candle names because I know there's a list somewhere of like, and they're, they're, I couldn't get into it, but they're like rejected names for Yankee candles, um, I think would be great. Mine is birch bark. And this goes to my childhood and it goes to spending vacations in Wisconsin at a house in Shano, Wisconsin, where uh, actually my sister and brother-in-law still have the house, but it was my aunt's at the time. And she had a little canoe that was one of the decorations that was sitting on a shelf that was made out of birch bark. And the odor from the birch bark was just a memory that I have that I really like. And I like the smell of that fresh birch bark, uh, you know, sort of like Frank and blue velvet. If you put it in a tank, I'd huff it all day long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a reference you'll have to look up, but I, I, I like that. And there's a place where, uh, on one of our bike paths here in Northeast Ohio, when you go past the falls, that is a field full of birch trees. And I'll stop there just because sometimes during the season, you're just surrounded with the smell of birch bark. And it just brings back this sort of peaceful, peaceful thought for me. 
Well, you y'all have heard me talk about the sweet grass in New York, so I, I won't speak to that tonight. Um, but there is something very peaceful about that sweet grass smell for me. But two are lavender, um, which reminds me of a number of comforting things. Um, my grandmother, my mother, um, some really special people and times in Colorado because, you know, everybody's in their oils and burning things and whatnot because it's Colorado. But the scent of um, kind of old school, um, uh, oh my gosh, it just flew out of my head, Old Spice, the the men's aftershave, um, Old Spice, that was what my father wore. And it's weird because I don't typically smell it very often, but sometimes I'll smell it out of nowhere. Like I do not see a man for miles and I will smell it. And it's like, it just, it brings him into the moment for me. And I think I've shared on the show before, my my dad died in 1986, so he's been gone quite some time. But there will be times where that old school, old spice aftershave smell just comes through. And I'm like, whoa, like, and, and it just brings me back to being with my dad. Of course, like, you know, there's always these mixes of smells, you know, of like, you know, it, my parents were smokers. So like these smells were always mixed with cigarette smoke and there was always something being cooked or baked in my house. So it was mixed with that too. So the smells in my mind and in my mind's eye, I guess, are not mono smells. Like there are these combination smells where, you know, you're like, okay, I, I'm getting some lavender and pot roast and somebody just made a fresh pot of coffee. I mean, this is kind of the the world of living in an apartment building. Like you might get that one day when you walk in, you know, and it's the strangest thing because all of a sudden I'm like at my parents' house where I grew up, you know, or whatever the case may be. But yeah, I, apparently I have some smell complexity, but I, I think sometimes I can actually conjure a smell like if I need to feel comforted. I don't know if anybody's experienced that. I know that sounds weird, but I think that's why I sometimes get like phantom Old Spice smells. I like it. It's interesting because I, I mean, what brought the question on for me was um, a really weird experience. Actually, I, I was working on getting all the decorations out for fall, and you know, the, I guess the humidity had to be right, and the wind, and it was about to rain, and you know, just this kind of like garage smell, if that makes sense. And I had this memory of, of playing in my grandfather's garage and he was a mechanic. So like there were like all these uh, different smells, right? So some of that smell complexity was probably part of it. Um, that, like there's the motor oil and just the, the fall. And it brings me back to like that specific memory of playing around in that garage and him yelling at me and telling me to calm down before I knock the jack out and the car falls on him. And, you know, cause he goes through the whole, series of things that was going to happen and when i say yell he didn't yell it was like uh scolding while he's laughing kind of thing um and it was just a real specific memory and i can't tell you the last time i actually had that memory it brought back something that i hadn't thought about or didn't know i retained and it was just interesting that that specific kind of smell brought that back this couple minutes in time of when i was you know maybe seven or eight years old um, so it was really neat. And it got me to thinking about, you know, all of those things that happened and, and it made me feel good, made me smile. Um, so just one of those weird things and, and just glad to hear about everyone else's experience. I found some bad Yankee candle names, and I think these were actual names. Mantown, Schnitzel with Noodles, if you want the smell of Schnitzel with Noodles, Bright Copper Kettle, First Down, 
and it has a football on it, so I can't figure out what that is. Whiskers on kittens and warm woolen mittens, I guess. So they had a favorite things line. <laughs> yeah. A child's wish. Mmm. Bacon is uh, one of the candle names. <laughs> Don't you burn a candle to get the bacon smell out of your house? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, it's the riding mower one that bothers me. Like, what a classist candle. I, I, I couldn't get a riding mower for 40 years. I had to save up. Like, how many bucks would get a riding mower and have a lawn to compare the smells? I don't know. All these male focused ones. I'm thinking I just came from a teenage hockey game. I'm smelling sweat and aqua velva or whatever the Dracar Noir of the of the decade is. I mean, God, what an awful smell. OK, so our next question again. Here we go for another quick left turn. Um, how do you address professional email etiquette with students, if at all? I haven't had the opportunity. Um, really, I mean, I've co-taught a bunch of courses, but for me, it was kind of like I, I left it to the primary instructor to attend to that. We might discuss it, but I mean, um, I just kind of um, sit in silent judgment. I don't deal with it directly. I deal with it indirectly. So if a student sends me an email um, that says, Mr. Gensius, um, I will respond with it in sign Dr. Gensius or Hey Marty, I will respond and sign with my, with my uh, title. And hopefully they will see that because it might just be social norms that they're not aware of. If I attack them for that directly, then anything else I put in the email is going to be lost. So I've got to figure out which battle I want to want to win the battle of what they're asking for, how they're asking for it. Um, and I'd, I'd much rather directly get how they're ask what they're asking for than how they're asking for it. Well, in my last shop, I used to teach intro to counseling to all of the students in the program. And we had a talk on the first day of class about email etiquette because it's very important um, because we're grooming professionals here, right? We also talked about it in my last shop during orientation. And that was, you know, we gave it to them verbally of like, we expect a greeting. We expect a title. If you don't know somebody's title, go high. And then, you know, if they say, call me Bozo, then call them Bozo instead of Dr. Bozo. You know, you, you know, to give a, give which some niceties, give the context of what you were asking for a closing and your name and to write using a professional email address. This is the synopsis. Well, now I don't teach that course and I don't run orientation. So I usually start with what Marty described as like the modeling of, you know, if they call me, I always know that they have no idea who I am because they've called me Jennifer, you know, and I don't go by Jennifer um, and I'll sign Dr. Cook. And if they don't pick up on that subtlety, then in our in our next email exchange, I will kindly remind them that they have been informed that we use titles um, of doctor professor in the program and to please address all faculty by that title, you know, because I, I have no problem addressing it um, directly and giving the reason. And that's always important is to say, during professional interactions, we want to make sure that we're matching the expectation of the other professional who's on the other end of it. So thinking about when you're preparing for practicum, um, applying to sites, you don't want to potentially lose out on a site because you made a an etiquette faux pas that you didn't know you stepped in something. So 
trying to help them to kind of learn those unwritten rules of professionalism um, so that they can feel more in command of these types of tasks, as opposed to feeling like, oh my gosh, I stepped in something and I was offensive to somebody and I had no idea that I was doing that. So I tend to, I start with modeling and then I move to the direct because I don't want them to be uninformed. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with what's been said here. I, I think I tend to connect a little bit with what Mar- with what Marty said earlier. And just because I get overly sensitive to it, I'm, I'm first generation. So I struggled and can remember a few times where I stepped in it, um, you know, before somebody really came to me and said, okay, this is what you need to, to do. And because it was something I wasn't accustomed to, um, that wasn't something that came naturally to me. So there's always been this conversation here and there about like, should we really do this in an intro course? Do we need to have this conversation orientation? Yeah. Um, we don't need to have it in a demeaning way. We can have the conversation and, and prepare students for this is how we communicate. This is what's helpful. You know, written and verbal. I, I think both are really important. These these are ways in which you're going to need to communicate with others um, in the professional community. And, you know, it, it. I think it can build their efficacy. It can, it can help them feel better and more comfortable communicating, asking for help, asking questions, and, you know, not feeling out of place when doing so. So I think it's really important. Eric, do you teach your students the 24-hour rule of, like, if you're mad about something, to wait 24 hours before they write you about their grade, their feedback, whatever the case may be? Yeah, I mean, with caveats, there's times where that's not an option, right? Um, where you need to send that communication and you might be emotional, but it's okay to get up, walk away, take a breath, you know, get a cup of coffee, whatever, whatever the case may be. Um, the 24 hours thing, sure, if it doesn't need to happen now, uh, I think it's a good practice. I do it myself. I, I set stuff up in drafts when I know I, I get reactive. And that's a benefit of having that asynchronous communication, right? You can't do that in the moment, but asynchronously, you sure, certainly can. Mm-hmm. I was curious, since you all are intentional about it, I'm pretty intentional about that too, of saying it's okay to take a minute. So if I just gave you your feedback and you just read it and I get an email 14 minutes later, I'm thinking you didn't take much time to think through it before you shot off that I'm really ticked email. (laughs) Yeah, I think these are all really, really good responses. Something that came up recently for me, what sparked this question, I got... So I have a really big assignment for multiple courses, sections of the same class due this coming week. And so this weekend, I got a multitude of emails. And I'm not talking like one or five, like I got many, many emails. And they're all panicked because they've got this big assignment due and a class. And I have spent class time after class time after class time and the syllabus and the rubric explaining said assignment. And suddenly... Friday night at 8.15 p.m., everyone in the class decides to work on it. And so I'm getting all of these emails, right, that are pretty much all things that were said in class or in the the syllabus. And none of them are addressed to Dr. Martin, Professor Martin, Gina, nothing. It's, hi, here's this. (laughs) Here's my question. And I think that, I, I don't know, it just, it started to really irk me, um, you know, at 8.30 PM on a Friday night and the urgency feeling of these emails was like, I need to know this right now. And so I used that 24 hour rule. I was like, I'm going to step away from this for a few minutes 
take a deep breath and, you know, look at something else. Um, and I think that, I don't know, my usual go-to is like you all said, modeling it, talking about it in class saying, you know, this is how you address professionals. And I'm, I'm just not sure where, where this is coming from. It might be the panic of the assignment. It might be, who knows that I, I look young. I mean, I get called a student all the time. Um, so that might be playing into it. Who knows? It's just something that came up recently and kind of where I'm at. Well, and Gina, the expectation that you are going to be responding on either Friday night, Saturday, or Sunday. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a whole other level of expectation and I would say disrespect there. And I, I get it too. I mean, I'll get those emails and, you know, I've, I've gotten real clear of like, if I'm, if we're on the weekend, like I'm off email y'all, like I, I respond within 24 hours, the rest of the week, you have five other days to write me during a time period in which you'll get a fast response, but your emergency is not my crisis or your crisis isn't my emergency or whatever that saying is, because I don't know, I, it irks me. And especially because I'm in a fully online program right now, they expect to have even more direct access to at all times. I mean, Eric's over here. Yeah. I mean, it gets even more intense there. And I'm just like, whoa, my boundaries have gotten even tighter. I'm like, mm, yeah. no, Friday night. No. I took email off my phone. Right. And I, I really liked having that like accessibility to be able to see what was coming in. But then I couldn't shut off the helper thing, too. You know, because I, I think we struggle with that sometimes, too. And I would see the email and I would see the email and it would have language in it, like, please help me. And I have a hard time not. Right. And and then I'm like, this is academia. You're going to be OK. One, uh, two, you had ample opportunity to reach out, to ask questions, you know, especially if we met for class, like I, I'm, I'm going to leave this be. And I needed that boundary. I had to pull that off of there. So I don't have email on my phone anymore. When I'm working, I'm working. And when I'm not, I'm not. I'm present for other things. And it took me a long time to get there. Um, and I realized we strayed a little bit from the path, Gina. But, I, I, uh, oh, but it's appreciated. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's appreciated. And I think, again, pulling us back to modeling, like that can be a powerful thing to model for our students too. To know that like, yes, even though I am your professor, I'm your instructor and you have an assignment coming up, very soon after the weekend, sometimes it's okay to step back for a minute and and have those boundaries and sign it, Dr. Martin. <laughs> yeah. And Dr. Martin, how many weeks ago did you assign this assignment? Mm -hmm. The beginning of the semester. Yes. When was that for you? August? <laughs> it was. Yeah. Amazing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Surely is. <laughs> well, then I'm going to switch it to something else because I can feel all the everyone getting riled up over here and which is which is fair it's fair and it, it's valid but I can almost feel it coming through the screen so was there ever a time that you wanted something so much and you finally had an opportunity to get it but you punted I I you know when you sent that question I said this is a great question I'm sure I'll come up with an answer for this question I haven't come up with an answer for this question. So that tells me no. Now, um, that doesn't mean I get everything that I want. I'm getting more of what I want now that I'm an adult than I was when I was a kid. And probably compensating for it by getting more things as an adult that I want. But um, 
if the opportunity comes to get something that I didn't get in the past, it's just off my radar at that point. I'm just on to something else or something different. And it just doesn't seem that important in the moment. So it was hard to say that I've had the experience that the question asked for, because either when it comes up, I don't. It doesn't mean I punted. It just means I don't. Uh, And then more and more these days, I'm not asking for a lot. But when I want something, I go ahead and get it. You know, what kept coming to mind for me with this was, did did I really want it in the first place? Because it's it's like sometimes you get clear either by consequence, a natural consequence, quite possibly. Um, I'm thinking, I thought back to when I was about to go into the ninth grade and I was named the drum major of my junior high school band. And I decided to have a pool party on the day when they were having the meeting for all the band members. And it was like the first week after school had let out. And like I had this huge pool party at my house, a bunch of band people there. And the band director found out about it. And he was like, you're not going to be the drum major anymore. You're out. And I was just sort of like, "Eh." like, I realized I didn't really want it. Like, and I quit band and I went choir and show choir and all of these performance, like using vocalization full time for my electives. And actually, because I got kicked out of a band, I learned how to type, which can you imagine in my, in the profession now, if like, I didn't know how to type, like, this would be really awful. So I kept trying to think like, well, what is, was there something? And I, I think it was any of these things that I thought that I wanted and then was like, "Mm, I think it's because I didn't really want them. They weren't missed opportunities. It's because it was, maybe it would be a missed opportunity for someone else, but it was not a missed opportunity for me, you know? And I, I don't know. I racked my brain trying to think of like, well, what was something that was right there? And then I said, no, thank you. And all I could think of was somebody else doing that in my life right now um, in a in a relationship situation. And I was like, you know, I, this isn't even mine. I mean, this is somebody else um, who I think is, you know, afraid, you know, like having fear and fear is bigger than what I believe they want. Anyway, nobody needs to hear all that. But I guess like I, I, I couldn't I couldn't answer this except to say, like, I don't think you really want it. Like even fear person that I'm describing, I don't think they really want the relationship. They want the fear more. You know, it's all about those choices of like, do we want to keep the problem? I guess I go back into counselor mind of like, do you want to keep the problem or do you want to resolve the problem? And we see it over and over again, where clients, students, ourselves, we find ways to keep our problems. And sometimes we decide not to, but I think maybe... This is more of an example of like, I'm going to keep my problem or I'm going to go get a different one. Not the one I thought. Yeah, I, I like this question. Um, and, and, you know, I talk about how this is a safe space, right? And anybody who listens, I, I you know, hopefully you can uh, abide by that too. Um, I have buyer's remorse a lot. I guess that means I have trouble learning except for from experience. Um, so kind of like Marty, I, I think I end up, pursuing things and and uh going for it and usually getting it and then then having the recognition that maybe i romanticized this whole thing um and built it up and didn't take the time to really look at what all this meant right what all this change was and i think about it a lot in terms of career you know i've had a lot of those kind of instances happen and 
um, you know, really having that recognition is, is should be, shouldn't be an afterthought. Right. Um, so I, I tend to learn by experience. My wife has come to, to call me a honey badger. That's her favorite term. Um, because when I get an idea in my head, I'm, I'm going to do it. And, you know, she'll sometimes try and bring up, well, maybe you should consider. And I'm like, yes, have considered. We'll move forward. Do and then regret. And I follow that pattern. Um, so I can definitely think of a lot of instances where um, that has happened. But but there was one that I remember just pursued this promotion. And, and, and hindsight was just because the person who held it romanticized it for me, built it up, right? They were moving up and they wanted me to, they were kind of grooming me for the role. And, you know, this was prior to even my counseling career. And I, I got to the interview process and they started talking about the job and the duties and everything involved. And um, I passed. I was like, yeah, no. And it was really difficult afterwards. But like in the moment, I was really proud of myself. I was like, clear, I made a good decision here. Um, and I never regretted it. It's just, it seems to be the exception rather than the rule for me to punt. I tend to learn from experience more often than not. For me, this was a complicated question because I, I can think of a number of times that this has happened in my life. And um, kind of what Eric was saying, it was this romanticized idea of what I thought something was. And then it was the realization of time has passed. I have grown I'm a different person than I was. And I don't think I actually want the thing that I wanted so bad, you know, a year ago or a few months ago or whatever it is. And I think that that comes with, a, I don't know, a, a certain level of like insight and awareness. But there's also that like complicated feeling of like regret and guilt and like, I don't know. So for me, these are complicated experiences. And I don't particularly enjoy them. I tend to try to run from them as much as possible. Um, and when they do happen, I think it's a good opportunity to reflect on the change that has happened because things do change over time. And I think that wanting something really, really badly and like striving towards it and working towards it can have different opportunities within that grander scheme, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Okay. Unmuting helps. Thank you, everyone. Actually, this was really cool listening to these answers. Um, the question came up for me because of an experience more recently. And it, listening to what y'all were saying, it was like, okay, well, this does kind of encompass all of that, I think. So here we go. When I was 17, well, first we say, I think... We've mentioned a few times on here that I'm a fan of the band. They might be giants. So when I was 17, I was in the front row. It was at Boston at the Paradise Theater. And after the show, the set list was right in front of me. And my friends like, get it, get it. But I'm like scared, right? I'm 17 years old in this big city venue, um, even if it was a smallish venue. And I'm like, I don't want to get kicked out. What's going to happen? Oh, my goodness. You can't go on stage. Like, I, I really didn't have too many experiences in my life beforehand to know, like, nobody's going to care. And you, you do that. So anyway, somebody else jumped up on stage, grabbed the set list. And I was like, oh, man. So since then, I've been trying to, like, restory and create because really I've seen them in concert 
11, 12 times now. And at least over half those times I've been right in the front. And for various reasons, um, you know, it just hadn't happened for me. Sometimes they have actually put the set list up on stands. So you can't like just jump and grab it off the floor. Anyway, in October, there was a show that was like originally two and a half years prior. So the tickets were on sale three years ago. And so I get to the show and just like always, I'm in the front row. I'm ready. Okay. What's cool is everyone's older. So there's not so much pushing and you don't have to get there like three hours early if you're going to get in the front because everyone's like middle age now and they're kind of over it. So I get there. I'm in the front row. I'm ready to go. It's perfect. There's this girl next to me standing there and she just had like the biggest eyes. You can tell she is so excited. And I hear her story about how her parents got tickets three years earlier for themselves. And she was crying because she was 17 at the time and she wouldn't have been able to go to the show. And then now that it's three years later, her mom gave up her ticket to give to the daughter. So she went with her dad, which is also very endearing. He talked the whole time. She she's just so excited. And she's just like, this is her first time seeing them ever. And, you know, we're talking and because we're there first. So you have that hour where you're just doing nothing. Um, so I talked to her and, you know, she she's very charming. She's she studies bees at Ohio State. Um like very cool, but she, she loves this band. And I realized like, Oh, just going through this whole day. Like she was just me when I was her age for this band, except now that she knows the other 15 years of like their catalog much better. She, she just knows everything. So I'm like, Oh geez. So the, the show ends and there's this big guy next to me. Who's trying to like reach underneath and grab the set list. <laughs> and even though the set list is right in front of me and I've wanted the set list and I've just, this would have been my time. I turned to the girl and I'm just like, go get it, go get it. And she jumps on the stage and she gets the set list and she's just like, oh, you know, you could just, uh, it was, it was very cool. Um, I don't regret it, but I'm still kind of like half kicking myself sometimes. But at the same time, I know, like it was very cool to like see somebody who wanted it that badly actually get it. Cause I also like what you were saying, it didn't mean as much to me anymore as it would mean to her. And I don't know. It was one of those moments that it was just going to be for her, something she was going to remember, not just because of the set list, but you know, for everything that was going on. Um, but it was nice to kind of add to that. But I, I, I'll go to the next show. Try again. Next time, bring me back a set list if you can, Steph. That would be great. Uh, change of gears. I always like to end it off with somewhat of a more academic-focused question. Hopefully, we've kept you through the podcast up to this point. What's your take on certification exams? Good, bad, indifferent, irrelevant? Meh. Uh, necessary evil. Um, I'm a terrible test taker. So when it came time to have to take the NCE, um, I was glad that my state, I took it for licensure. Um, Colorado was NCE only state back then. I don't know if they still are, but that's what they were. And then also that's double duty back then to go ahead and just apply for your NCC simultaneously back then. Um, so I was able to twofer right on in there. I passed, but man, it's torture. I mean, as a poor test taker, and I always have been, um, 
Blech. Necessary evil. Yeah, I got to agree. I feel like we need something. It has to be there. There has to be some way to assess, like, basic knowledge, I guess, or retention, because that's what we're really looking at um, for most of these. You know, I, I took the NCE also. Um, you know, it's been a while now. Um, but I, I just, meh. You know, it's not the, I, I think that's like the perfect phrased word expression to describe it um because it doesn't hold a, a terribly high significance for me um i think it really does uh, you know it does what it's set out to do to some degree um, but there's so much variance and there's so much knowledge in the field it's hard to tell what's pivotal and, and what's not um we've talked about the complexity of this field and the history and you know it's just kind of there yeah, just existing. I think that that's a, a good description of it. I uh, I don't know. I am usually a pretty good test taker. And I, I feel like these certification exams, it's hit or miss depending on the day. Um, I think that students get really worked up about them, get real anxious. And I don't know if it's really worth all that to me. I, I just feel like there's a lot of value placed on these. And, you know, kind of like Eric, you said, is there any real connection to how well you do as a counselor just because you pass the NCE with flying colors? I don't know. Um, And I just I don't know. I yeah, I usually don't study for tests or exams, which is maybe not a good thing for a professor to admit. Um, But that being said, I don't know. I feel like with these students take so much time studying and so much effort preparing and they always want all the books and everything else. And I feel like there's a big money-making component of it as well. And to me, I just, I don't know if that's really that fair. So it's my thoughts on that. Yeah, all of that. Um, Last year I took the NCMHCE and it just felt kind of ridiculous. Um, I mean, I understand the point. There has to be some gatekeeping in some level to let people through for all of this. But, um, you know, how much you memorize certain facts really aren't going to be helpful necessarily <laughs> in any way unless you remember, oh, I remember that fact. Let me go look up how to do that and try to hone my skills. But there's nothing you're going to memorize in a book that's going to matter for you as a counselor Um to really be effective. Of course, some stuff matters. I mean, but the way those tests are set up, no, and they are expensive. They are expensive to take. They are expensive if you want to make sure you take it once or at least try your hardest to only take it once. You're going to, I mean, and like for a lot of it too, it's just you the practice materials are almost essential for me. I'm somebody who I like to know what I'm walking into. I like to know the, the way the test is set up. I want to know how my brain is supposed to think for the test, um, if I can. And that, to me, is usually the biggest challenge. So, um, yeah, it, it they should change the way they do them to make them more appropriate or somehow uh, applicable to skills needed for counseling. Yeah, question comes uh, from me this week. I sat for a certification exam. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I didn't study that much for it. Um, I wouldn't recommend that uh, my students not study for it. But, uh, you know, so again, uh, 
do as I say, not as I do. Went through some study guides to try and get an anchor. I agree with you, Steph. I think study guides are helpful. But in this case, the study guides seem to be talking about a lot of stuff that I wouldn't have considered important or relevant to practice. Uh, the exam that I took, there were a lot of questions that didn't seem at least connected to anything that I had, I had learned or taught in you know, the 25 years that I've been teaching. And I, I proudly told my colleagues, I, I did get my scores and I did do, I think, fairly well, very well. And I said, I attribute that to my degree, not in counseling, but in counseling psychology. Are they, yeah, you want to give them folks a test. So, you know, you screen out the bartenders, at least the bartenders that haven't been trained in counseling. And I got nothing against bartenders, but you want to have some benchmark to get people through, but try and make it relevant to the actual practice of uh, whatever they're getting certified in. I don't know if I'm good, bad, indifferent, or irrelevant. I should have put meh in there as an answer because that seems to be that seems to be the modal answer in this group for those of you who are taking the statistics portion of the test. So that's it for the questions tonight. We have one final shot question. A country outside of North America you would like to travel to. Man, I don't even know where to start. I'm only allowed to pick one. Damn, why am I first? Like, I'm the one who's got a travel list a mile long. Well, let's see. Australia's been the goal. So I'll just put Australia. I know it's continent, but I'm just going to put Australia out there. I'd love to go to Ireland. I vote to go back to Tanzania. It's in Africa. I spent some time there and I would basically do anything to go back. Japan has been my lifelong goal. Um, I will definitely go back to Turkey. Um, that's a given, but I would say the country that I'd like to go to that I haven't been to is Lithuania. That's sort of my family roots. I want to see what it looks like. I want to be the first from my family tree to return there or to return to that country. So yeah, Lithuania, which, uh, some of you pr preferably for Putin takes it over again, you know, we'll see how that plays out on the world stage. Uh, but yeah, I'd like to go to Lithuania. So thanks for the squad, Jen, Gina, Stephanie, and Eric. Look for some of these characters on their podcasts on the podtalk.net. You can find out more about them at circularfiringsquad.net. Our theme music is from Menaja Quad, Real Swing Chef. And that's it for this episode of Circular Firing Squad. Ready, fire, aim.